Welcome to ADMA Brave Marketing Podcast, the podcast where local and global industry leaders provide perspective and opinion on the issues that affect the Australian marketing industry today. From their insights and their experiences, we explore the mindset, toolset, and the skill set required by marketers in this brave new world. I'm Andrew Birmingham, the Editor-in-Chief of Witch 50 Media, and your host today. In today's episode, brought to you by Sitecore, we look at the disruptive forces operating in the market and the impact they're having on business and on marketers. To begin with, we asked ADMA board member Stuart Tucker to describe how customers are forcing businesses to transform. Customer expectations have lifted and they haven't lifted a little bit, they've lifted significantly and I guess you could call it the Uber effect. Um, given that some disruptors have lifted their game so much, I think now there's an expectation that basically every customer and every brand will do the same and customers are now expecting this from everybody, including incumbents, let's face it. And the, the difference now is that customers are empowered um, and they're in charge. And I think that the balance of power has shifted so substantially whether it's social referrals, comparison sites, online forums, you know, we, we all know that brands can be destroyed overnight. And I guess the other thing is that the corporate veil has lifted. There's no more secrets about sustainability or climate policy or treatment of staff and people within organisations. So we now have a really clear lens into organisations, both in the way that they work, the way they operate and the way that they build their products and take them to market. And I guess the result is that brands need to really live in the shoes of their customer. And that's like A, to remain relevant and B, to stay in touch because customers are moving at such a pace. And I just don't think that the traditional methods like research or maybe even customer SAD and maybe even NPS to a certain extent, just don't cut it if you're going to try and keep in touch with what's going on in customers' lives. We really need to create a genuine voice of customer approach. And that includes everything from call listing to customer forums, bringing real customers into your boardroom or maybe even hosting dinners or lunches with customers because that expectation has changed so significantly, we've got to move in line with them. As Stuart described, in an era of accelerating disruption and transformation, the relationship the brands have with their customers and the consumers is more critical than ever before. We begin with one of the most quoted and most frequently misdiagnosed digital disruption stories in the world today, that of film company Kodak. Vijay Gupta is the Vice President of Strategy and Industry at Sitecore and was a keynote speaker at a recent event in Sydney. When he came off stage, I took Vijay aside for a few minutes and asked him to explain what really happened to Kodak and what does everybody get wrong about that story. Kodak is a great example of a company that did wonderfully well. It was a part of, I think, a lot of our lives, helping us uh, capture as well as store in our memories uh, photographically. And... Over the years, their business declined. And the common narrative around the, the business decline is that they missed the digital revolution. The reality is that they did not miss the digital revolution. They actually created a separate arm for digital imaging. And for a very long while, uh, they were one of the leaders in digital compact camera sales. What really actually happened that led to their uh, demise was the fact that the smartphone with cameras came up. So from a Kodak perspective, they were hyper-focused on what they do very well. They missed out on the tectonic shift that was happening in another industry, in this case, telecom, where what consumers needed, which was a simple way of capturing and storing their memories, was being solved for by someone else in a much, much better way. So that's what happened with Kodak. And you know, this is the blind spot that many large companies have. 
it's very difficult for companies, especially large organizations who have been very successful in their history to number one, not have that blind spot. And number two, to realize that competition for their industry might not come from their industry. It might come from some other industry, which is exactly what happened with, with Kodak. Another example can be the transportation industry. The competition for that industry did not come from another transport transporter. It came from a software company called Uber. So, so these are things that continue to happen. And in one way, we are in, a, in an exciting world as a consumer because this kind of competition leads to offerings and services which we all like to use. But when you are leading a business such as this, you always have to have one eye in the front and the other on the rear screen to look at where the next competition is coming from. Good advice, but not necessarily new advice. The real question is, a company is better at identifying their blind spots today. The awareness that one needs to look outside their industry, uh, that has increased significantly. However, the question is how many other industries you look at, because it's, it's, it's not an easy thing to keep looking outside of your industry. So the blind spots still exist. Uh, and in some sense, that is what keeps competition going. That's what you know progress is all about. It's it's the blind spot that someone else will come into. But there is there is certainly certainly an awareness, increased awareness, amongst business executives that the competition in their industry not only comes from their competitive set, it might come from someone else, from a totally different industry, from a totally different country. The picture VJ paints is of a business community that's coming to terms with a disrupted world where the rules of competition are changing. Gerd Schenkel is one of the pioneers of the Australian digital sector. He launched Ubank for an AB and he later became the head of digital at Telstra where he helped to drive that company's digital transformation. These days he's the director and digital practice leader of Partners in Performance and he's also the chairman of Credit Clear, a fintech. I asked Gerd to address both of the themes VJ raised starting with the difficulties that incumbents often have spotting shifts in the market. So large incumbents, as we probably all know, often miss the biggest shifts. And there's many reasons. Uh, a few that come to mind are, firstly, uh, disruption is a bit of a misnomer because the big shifts happen over longer periods of times, right? multiple years, sometimes decades. And sometimes technologies are actually around for many decades before they find an application or a use case that makes them disruptive in nature. And therefore, uh, often incumbents are very good at identifying new technologies. And of course, they have an issue with trying to work out which ones are going to be disruptive and they can't invest in all of them, but they know of all of them. You know, they're very good at knowing about all of these technologies. But they're not very good at, at turning new technologies into disruptive forces. And, and firstly, you need to be very close to consumers and have a much broader perspective on what consumers might be doing with this technology. And that's typically um, outside the traditional business of the incumbent. And I think you would find in all of those examples, you know, Blockbuster, Kodak, etc., that um, the incumbent had a very narrow definition. They would say we are making, you know, a chemical film or something like that, whilst um, someone else from outside a traditional industry might say we're in the business of entertainment or we're in the business of capturing memories or whatever. And sometimes it's actually not a company, but 
it's the consumer base that as a whole defines what it's really about and uh, companies follow that closely and incumbents are just slow doing so. Um, so those are a few examples why. And then of course you have the incentive structure where incumbents, and that's not you know good or bad, incumbents are here to maintain and conserve the value they have, right? They already have value, so shareholders want to preserve that value and carefully build on it and not take huge risks, while startups have the advantage of having no value and therefore they can take higher risks. And that's just a, uh, an incentive um, structure that actually makes sense because if, if you have a $10, $20 billion company, you can't bet that company right? And you're more of a yield stock and so on. And it's very difficult for that sort of organization to foster and reward risk-taking and innovation because the very people who run the company have been promoted and have been successful in a more conservative structure, which actually suits the shareholders. Um, so there is a question of philosophy whether large incumbents actually should be the innovators at all. This podcast is brought to you by Sitecore. To learn more about the benefits of personalization, get the Sitecore How-To Guide to Personalization. Check the link in the description. Let's talk about that new mission statement from the Business Roundtable today, sparking a debate about the purpose of a corporation and why maximizing shareholder returns is no longer the main goal. A statement signed by almost 200 CEOs, including J.P. Morgan's Jamie Dimon, says companies should focus on all stakeholders, including employees, customers, and local communities. Um, This is interesting. In his keynote speech, Vijay talked about the idea of profit with social purpose. I asked Gerd why he thinks it is that CEOs like Jamie Dimon suddenly feel there's a need to reaffirm the wider role of business. According to Gerd, it's the consumers again who are driving the agenda. So a number of things have probably happened over the last, I don't know, 10 or so years. Firstly, you have a generational shift and it's a bit cliche-like, but you know, millennials or, or younger people tend to be more values-driven in, in general. And you see that obviously in hiring and employing people where they're as interested in what you do as they're interested in why you do it. And, um, you know, we've had a relatively uh, successful period in economic expansion um, where we have a luxury as people to choose our job. Whilst, you know, in post-war Europe, people wanted a job to eat. Uh, I think now we've had this luxury and the younger generations grew up with this luxury to have choices. And they make a choice to go um, almost higher up in the value stack of the, you know, Maslow's hierarchy. And that's, you know, why do you do things? And that I think is similar in the consumer space where, you know, there is a, a powerful you know, saying in marketing, I don't know where it's come from, that people buy a product, you know, because of why you make it. And Apple is a good example. Um, Google is trying to be more values-driven in how they present their products, although Google is probably more utilitarian. Um, But these products are also very undifferentiated, really, right? Because, um, I mean, Apple's products aren't, um, the most sophisticated or advanced technology-wise. They, they, they combine componentry that's available to anyone. So where do you get the margin from on top of your input cost 
uh, you can get much more margin out of the Y. And I know arguably Microsoft with Satya Nadella has turned around because of the Y. He talks about the Y all the time and in a relatively short period of time has turned his company from a declining laggard into a leader, right? And so I think it's in the why. People care about the why. And that's, um, that comes through in how companies talk about themselves and what they do. Now there is a nuance here. Um, you need to have integrity in all of this. I think WeWork uh, is the latest example where they overdid the why, right? Pretending they're raising the level of consciousness, I think, of the world or something like that. And that wasn't accepted. Broadly, people were laughing at it and saying, you're a real estate company. Um, so you can overdo that. But having a genuine why uh, with integrity in your products and in your DNA is, is really powerful if you can maintain that. Joe Schenkel has experience running digital at a large incumbent in the case of Telstra. But he also took a startup, Ubank, all the way through to scale. I asked him to describe to us how hard it is for incumbents and startups to work together. A lot of younger people now choose the career as a, you know, entrepreneur coming out of uni, which is great. Uh, and of course, then um, you see the world from the other side and you start realizing that you have some disadvantages as well. And that's uh, lack of established customer base, lack of brand, lack of resources, all that. And therefore, the obvious question is whether there isn't value to be gained uh, from incumbents and startups working together. And in theory, that's true. In practice, though, extremely hard to do. Difficult though it may be, many incumbents believe it's an important part of their strategy. Marcus Marchant, the Chief Digital and Innovation Officer for QBE Insurance, explains. Rather than seeing some of those insure techs as a threat to your um, customer value proposition, if you partner with them, a lot of them can really add new value. It can change the way you do things, it can get your staff thinking differently and have a lot of positive effects, which is why we see partnering in the insure tech space so key to building that future QBE. QBE Insurance has itself been undertaking a fairly significant digital transformation for the last few years. Over the last couple of years, QBE is really embarking on a really ambitious digital transformation agenda. One of the things we did was rationalise our websites from 146 URLs to onequbu.com. And that's really the starting point for our digital transformation. It's putting a digital backbone in place that sits above our legacy systems as they transform and enables us to create and empower amazing digital experiences that are scalable and repeatable across the geographies that we operate in. At the heart of any digital transformation is a subject that's increasingly important to marketers. Data is really key to the insurance industry across the value chain. And not only does it drive how we underwrite and um, how we're making decisions around um, managing risk, which is essentially what an insurance company does, um, but really, more importantly now, data is really used to drive and create those amazing digital experiences. A customer experience transformation, in my mind, always starts with clear data and a clear data strategy. And from that, you can drive a digital transformation and ultimately a customer transformation. So data really underpins uh, the total transformation towards customer-centric value. Data is increasingly also a controversial topic, and the reason for that controversy is the issue of trust. I think really a value in customer data and that value exchange you have with customers and what you're going to do with their data is becoming increasingly important across all industries. But increasingly, customers expect you to maintain um, and explain to them how their data is being used and what, for what purpose. I think that's really important that we understand and respect that. I think that the world's only becoming even more transparent with what we're doing with customer data, and insurance is no exception to that. 
Diane Gates is the CMO of Minter Ellison, one of Australia's largest legal firms. I asked Diane how, in practical terms, she manages that dynamic between the need to personalise and the need to keep faith with consumer trust. We, we try to do it in a transparent way. So, for example, if it's in relation to a piece of content on the site, it's obvious that we're collecting data because there might be a form-filling piece which acts as a gateway between us and the content. It's very obvious to customers that we are collecting the data and I think it's, um, it's important that you do that in a transparent way. The other elements of personalisation are probably a little less transparent, um, but when we communicate with our clients via electronic mail and, and other similar devices that we use, we, we do let them know that we are trialling different personalisation um, pilots on our site. And, you know, we do that so that they feel comfortable that if they're visiting the site, they, they, they may be um, getting involved in something that is a pilot. Um, but, you know, we, we think it's very important that they understand that. So how would you characterise the maturity of Minter Ellison's personalisation efforts so far? We are um, probably tinkering at the edges, but we know that we are the first law firm to do so. We are collecting data on, you know, I suppose the standard touch points that you would expect, data around personal details in terms of names, addresses, contacts and so on. But we are going a step further and we are tailoring what people are seeing on our site based on their role, uh, the type of company that, that they're in and we're just piloting this approach with a few different types of content that we are pushing out through the site. We are getting some really, really interesting results. Um, there are certain types of content that we know um, through the data that we're capturing are really well regarded, lots of views, lots of interest and other types of content um, you know, potentially there's no point even creating it actually. So um, that's really important and useful. And, you know, just understanding the, the preferences of our clients in terms of what types of content they want to digest, the topics of interest to them, it's really, really useful for us because then we can add value to our clients in other ways. You know, for example, if we know that our clients are particularly interested in a, a specific industry sector, um, a particularly a particular type of offering that we have, we can then contact them in other ways and kick off some face-to-face -face conversations in that regard to try and support them in what they're trying to achieve. This podcast is brought to you by Sitecore. To learn more about the benefits of personalization, get the Sitecore How-To Guide to Personalization. Check the link in the description. In each episode of Admiral Brave Marketing, we ask an executive from the sponsor to describe for us what resonated with them in the discussion. This week, that task falls to Alison Sainsbury, a senior marketing consultant at Sitecore. I think there's a really interesting connection between the data privacy um, discussion and the social purpose discussion. So 
Customers are expecting personalization and they're happy to hand over data for that. Reports from Soda and eConsultancy tell us that the higher value customer expects more personalization, not less. Um, but we need to handle that very carefully and we need to be very transparent. And if anything, the opportunity for marketers is to be more transparent about how you use the data, to be really clear about it, not to bury it in 20 pages of terms and conditions, but to say, this is what we will do with it and give people the chance to opt in or opt out. And from a local perspective, we don't have GDPR here. We have the Australian Privacy Act. It's not terribly well enforced. It doesn't have anywhere near the stringency of GDPR. But what they're finding in Europe for marketing is that GDPR is the stick, finally, to the carrot that we always wanted of a connected customer experience, because it means that you have to make that data available so marketers can then use it. And if they're honest about it, that is the first step in reinforcing brand trust once you've got that, you can then move on to social purpose like VJ talks about. But if you don't have the trust first, there's no point trying to paper over a lack of trust in your organisation by throwing some money at a charity. You have to do social purpose authentically. And in order to do that, they've got to first trust you as that you're doing it right with their data. And then you can be doing it right on a broader social scale. Our thanks to Alison Sainsbury for her insights today and to our other guests, Admin Director Stuart Tucker, Vijay Gupta, the Vice President of Strategy and Industries at Sitecore, Kurt Schenkel, the Director of Partners and Performance, Marcus Marchant, the Chief Digital and Innovation Officer at QBE Insurance, and Diane Gates, the CMO of Minter Ellison. That brings us to the end of our first episode of Adma Brave Marketing. In our next podcast, we'll be looking at marketing as a mindset, not just a profession. Nobody gets out of bed in the morning determined to make their customers' lives miserable, but many actually achieve that outcome. In the next episode, we ask the question why it is that so many organisations are struggling to organise around the customer need. Thank you for your time today, and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode. Admir Brave Marketing is produced by Witch50 Media, and the producer on today's edition is Joseph Brooks. <laughs>